Hello and welcome to Encounter Church. We're so glad that you could be here today. My name is Daniel. I serve on the preaching team here at Encounter Church. You might be wondering what the preaching team is, and it's something that Dirk and I literally made up one week. It's nothing fancy. It's a two-man show, and I just help bring the word every week and sometimes preach it on stage. Uh, If this is your first time here at Encounter, we're especially glad glad you are here, and it is the perfect time to be here because we are in between series right now, um, so you're not going to miss out on anything. Today, we're going to talk about empty promises. The Bible likes to use the word idolatry. Um, but what I want us to focus on um, throughout, throughout this talk is this idea that idolatry is taking a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I buy into empty promises all the time. And it usually falls underneath two categories, uh, the category that I'll admit to and then the category that I won't admit to. For example, categories that I'll admit to um, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think Chipotle is the ultimate dining experience that one can have. $6.89, you get the burrito bowl with the wrap on the side, double rice, double beans, and you get two meals. That is a fantastic deal. You can't beat it, and the food tastes amazing. Dirk and I, we have a great relationship. One day, he, he said, hey, maybe we should go get food at Qdoba, and I really had to like reassess whether we should continue on with this mentorship program or not, and I just didn't know anymore, and I was very confused. Another, another thing that I'm, I'm, I'll admit to you that I'm, I, I take a good thing and make it into an ultimate thing, I'm just gonna, I'm, it's kind of embarrassing. I'm just going to come out and say it. I have the biggest man crush on Ryan Gosling. Like, that man has amazing bone structure, and he could sing, and he could dance, and he could act. I loved La La Land. I remember when I was uh, a student at Calvin College during finals week, they would have these pictures of Ryan Gosling, and it would say, like, you got this girl, and I got more motivated by that than the girls probably did, okay? The man is phenomenal. But then there are things that I have a harder time admitting to. Good things in life that God created for us to know more about him that I take and I made it the ultimate thing. And it started to consume my life and take over. One example of that, and it's hard for me to say it, but I I really, really think I made craft beer an ultimate thing in my life. I worked at Founders for about six months. Um, I got to know people there. I I love what they do. But, and I I had a hard time refusing that maybe, maybe I'm making this like this good thing, an ultimate thing, until American Express started doing this thing where they're like, at the end of the year, they'll send you how you spent your money throughout the year. Like, here's here's how much you spent on groceries. Here's how much you spent on rent and utilities. Here's how much you spent on, um, on bills. And then here's how much you spent at Founders. There was a separate category just for Founders. And that's when it all came crashing down like, yikes, I might have a bigger problem than I imagined it to be. Another issue that I struggle with a lot is this, I, this concept of being right. Um, I'm a philosophy major. If you know anybody, uh, I was a philosophy major. If you, knew, if you know anybody that is a philosophy major right now, you know how difficult it is to talk to those people without like feel like they're like, like, like crushing you and whatever you're trying to, whatever arguments you're trying to make, right? Um, I love solving problems. I love tinkering with ideas and seeing, like, what is the ultimate truth. And I didn't realize that that was an issue until people started telling me, like, hey, you're really steamrolling me in these conversations. Or they'll say things like, hey, I need you to give me more positive reinforcement rather than constructive criticism. And it was really, really hard for me to hear that. But that's what happens when we take something good that God created and we make it into an ultimate thing. 
And it starts to consume our lives and it starts to take over until we are just a shell that is being controlled by whatever we're addicted to, whatever, whatever we have made priority in our lives. And you probably know what I'm talking about. You've probably, like, some of you might be at school and you love, I mean, not love, I mean, you study. Um, and studying in itself is a good thing. It honors God and it honors our parents. But when it becomes the ultimate thing, when it starts to take over our lives, when we start to derive our meaning and who we are um, from our GPA rather than what God tells us who we are, that's when it starts to become an issue and it takes over our lives. Others of you might have jobs, uh, and, and working hard is such a great value that is talked about over and over again in the Bible, and, and it is such a good thing until it becomes the ultimate thing, and it starts to consume your lives, and it just leaves this like just hurricane of destruction behind you with your relationships, with your family, with your friends, with um, your social life, and your health, and, it beca- and, 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 and day by day, it takes a little bit of piece, piece by piece of who you are until it consumes you, and in the end of the day, you are being controlled by your job rather than the other way around. We see a similar problem happening in the Bible. Paul addresses, sees this exact problem happening in the Corinthian church, and he addresses this issue uh, by saying, look, you guys are taking this great thing, and you're making it into an ultimate thing, and it's becoming a problem. And I think it is a message for us today as well. So if you will, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 1. The words are in the screen behind me, and there are Bibles underneath your seat. If you love our Bibles more, we love giving them away. So please take one home with you if you don't have one or if you like ours better. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Let's pause there for a minute. I just want to do two quick things. One, establish historical context. Um, We're going to revisit this, so just tuck this away in the back of your head or jot this down if you're a note-taking kind of person. But Paul here is writing to the Corinthian church, and he's addressing the issue of idolatry, but it's a specific form of idolatry. It's uh, cultic meals, partaking in cultic meals, um, food sacrifices given to pagan gods. Tuck that away, write that down if you're a note-taking kind of person, we'll revisit that later. But what I want us to focus on here is what Paul's doing. And I'm going to break it down into three sections. First section, he's going to go into the past of the Israelites. He's going to say, look at what the Israelites have done. Look at the God blessings that God poured out to the Israelites and look at their response. Look how you're doing that now. Look at how God poured out his blessings and look at your response. And then the Holy Spirit is going to take that and he's going to apply it to our lives today. So this is what happens. Two, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is a reference to when um, the Israelites were leaving, uh, were being, um, were there was this huge exodus from uh, Egypt, and Moses is leading his people out of, uh, of the land, and then God leads his people by cloud in the day and by pillar of fire at night. And then when they get to the sea, uh, they're running away from the Egyptians who are coming to kill them, and God splits the sea, and the Israelites pass through and then collapses the sea as the, Isra- as the Egyptians try to pass through as well. It is... It is Paul reminding the Corinthian church of God's grace and mercy being provided to the Israelites. When he says that they were, bled, they were baptized, he's referring back to the first verse where he's saying that when that happened, when God led his people by the cloud and by the pillar of fire, when God split the sea and they passed on through, it wasn't just a supernatural act. It was an act of baptism. It was an act of God stamping his seal of approval onto Israelites' people saying, you are mine and I am yours and we will walk together and we will dance together. Verse 
Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Um, this is a reference to when God supernaturally provided the Israelites with uh, manna and, and quail. It, it fell from the heavens. And then water, when Moses struck the rock at Horeb and water flowed out, he blessed his people with food and water and continued to pour out his blessings to them over and over again. Verse 5, nevertheless, notice the transition point here. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Uh, God was not pleased with most of them. Most of them is like the biggest understatement here because out of like the million plus Israelites that left uh, Egypt, only two of them ended up in the promised land. The other like million plus, they just wandered the area until they died. And Paul's saying, okay, we're in the Israelites camp. In the past, God poured out his blessings and this was their response. Let's see what their response is. How did the Israelites respond to God when he was being gracious? Verse 6, now all these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Number one, do not be idolaters as some of them were. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverie. Two, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Three, we should not test God as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And four, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. There are four, there are four uh, references that uh, Paul makes here. The first one, do not be idolaters. And he specifically says, uh, as they ate and drank. This is a reference to when Jesus, I mean, uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai meeting with God and receiving the Ten Commandments. And the Israelites people were down on the ground. They got bored, collected all of their gold and made a golden calf out of it, right? And then... Moses comes down and he's all like, what are you guys doing? And Aaron comes up with the worst excuse in human history. He says, oh, uh, it just popped out of the fire. I don't know where it came from. And it's like, are you serious? Like, unbelievable. You got to come up with a better excuse, buddy. So that's the first reference he's talking about. Second reference, we should not commit sexual immorality. This is a reference to when God said like, hey, look, guys, like just bury within the Israelites, like no Netflix and chilling with the Moabite woman. And then some of the Israelites decide to go ahead and do just that. So Moses has this like huge meeting with like a panel of judges, uh, a council of judges. And then he has like the entire Israelite nation. And he's all like, all right, what are we going to do here? And in the middle of that meeting, I, am, I can't even make this stuff up. Some Israelite dude strolls in with the Moabite woman, locks eyes with Moses, sees the entire nation of Israel, and just continues on walking into the tent to like, to, like do his thing right? And Phineas, this guy, decides he's a judge, and he's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. He grabs his spear, goes into the tent, and just spears both of them, like, while they're, like, like in their bed. Kind of intense. I know. I, I'm not making this up. It actually happened. So that's the second reference. Third reference, we should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. This is when the Israelites um, were kind of, like, testing God, and God um, like, long story short, sent, like, poisonous snakes upon them. That's another wild story. The Old Testament is full of those. Uh, and do not grumble. And we do not know what specifically Paul's referring to here because there were so many instances when the Israelites would complain to God when God was being so gracious to them, so gracious to them, right? Four references. 
And then uh, verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So Paul is now transitioning from Israelites, God poured out his blessing, Israelites response. And he's saying now us, Corinthian church, as written down, it is a warning for us. It is, it is, you guys are doing the same things that the Israelites did. And you have set yourself on the path that they have. And this is a warning for you to listen to. So what were the Corinthian church doing that was so bad? And now it's time to take that thing you tucked in the back of your mind out. Cultic meals, meat sacrificed to idols. Cultic meals, what is a cultic meal? What would happen? Um, there would be pagan gods, Greek gods, if you ever, like, like, 10th grade, like English literature, Greek history, you have like Apollo and Nike and Aphrodisius and, you know, like all of these gods, Hermes, and they, they would uh, do food sacrifices to these pagan gods. And the way they would do that is take an animal, slaughter it, take a small portion of it. It was rarely the whole animal that was sacrificed. It was a small portion that would, the best part, like the prime rib, you know, like the $30 Costco good stuff. And they would give that to the gods. And then, and then, you, and then the rest of the meat would either be sold in the marketplace or consumed by the people. People who are worshiping. This idea of giving a food sacrifice to the gods and you also eating there too, that dynamic of sitting down and having a meal, super important. It's almost as important as giving the sacrifice itself. So that's what a cultic meal is. What were the frequent, how frequently did this happen? I, like a good analogy is like any party that you go to. Birthday party, New Year's Eve party, St. Pat, Patrick's Day party, anything. It was frequent. It, they, the people in this history did not uh, compartmentalize their religious life and their social life and their, and their political life and all of that. It was all just jumbled together. So they all just, um, so it all partook and they would have had many, many, uh, many, many experiences and uh, opportunities to be able to have these cultic meals. Especially, I mean, even slaves were, were able to take partake in this. We, uh, today we have 20 existing invitations, papyrus invitations that have been sent to us. I brought some with us um, here today. Uh, as you can see here, it says, Monius invites you to dine at the couch of the Lord Seraphis in the dining room of the Seraphion on the ninth from the ninth hour. What more? Um, Diogenes invites you to, uh, to dinner for the, for the first birthday of his daughter in the Seraphim tomorrow, which is Passion 26 from the eighth hour forward. One thing that I want you to notice about these invitations is how like systematic it is. It's like they have it nailed down. It happens so often that there's 20 of these and all 20 of them follow the exact same pattern, which indicates the frequency and the ample opportunity that the Israelites or, or, the, or the Christians of the Corinthian church would have had to go to go to these meetings. So why is it so bad? Why is it so bad to have dinner at your buddy's house for his daughter's first birthday party? There are two things. Number one, location. Where did these birthday parties happen? They happened at the temple. And it's kind of hard to go to like a, like a religious place, right? And to say that, yeah, this, it has nothing to do with religion. It has, there's no underlying fundamental basis of a spiritual act happening here. No, that makes no sense. Like, they had a party at the temple. It has going to have the significance of whatever God is being worshipped there at that temple in their party, right? And number two uh, is the entertainment at some of these parties, or most of these parties actually, were, was definitely rated X. Um, in Greco-Roman history, there are many references to quote-unquote luckless slave boys and wine servers who are at the mercy of his, his or her master's lust. Don't use your imagination. 
okay? I didn't have to use mine because my professor had like a nine-point PowerPoint slide to like just like scar me for life. I will save you the, the trouble. Just believe me, this stuff makes Game of Thrones look mild, okay? So there were two things. We had the location of where it took place and the sexual immorality. But what I want us to notice is notice what Paul's doing here. He's saying the Israelites suffered from idolatry with food and eating. They suffered from sexual, sexual immorality. They suffered from putting God to the test. And then they suffered with grumbling. Just like how you are suffering from eating and drinking and immor- immorality. Just like how you're suffering from sexual immorality. Just like how you're grumbling against God. And just like how you're putting him to the test by just doing those two things. Paul is, is calling them out and saying, you are putting yourself on the same path that the Israelites did, and look what happened to them. They had spears driven through them. They had snakes released upon them. Their nation was ultimately divided, then conquered, and they were exiled, and you do not want to be on the same path that the Israelites were. Continuing on, verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Corinthian church, they were wealthy, they were smart, they were well-educated, they, they knew their theology, they knew about Jesus. But, but Paul is saying, like, you think you know, but you don't. Look at your history, look at the lineage of everything that we're standing on right now. It all points to you guys just absolutely destroying and wrecking your lives. I think this is Paul's version of Ice Cube's check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you continue down this path, you will ultimately be destroyed. And Paul is reinforcing that over and over again. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. I'm not going to go into how this is probably the most like, misquoted Bible verse in the history of Christianity. It is referring to idolatry, specifically meat sacrifices to idols. But I, what I want to highlight here and what Paul is highlighting here is that God is gracious and he will be with us and that he will not give us more temptation than we can bear. And if that's the case, logically what follows is that he will see us through the temptations that, that we face in our day-to-day lives. And the last warning Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Run away from it. Flee. There are many instances in the Bible where it talks, it says, stand firm in your faith and stand firm in the face of adversary. But when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to idolatry, the Bible is very clear that we should run away from it because when it has its grip on our lives, it is so dangerous. It will take over you and it will ruin your lives. And I want, and, and, The Holy Spirit went from it being, so looking at the past Israelites, God's blessing, their their response being bad. Corinthian church, God blesses them, their response being bad. The Holy Spirit deemed this appropriate for the rest and and put it in in the Bible so that the rest of the churches for the rest of eternity hear this message of God pouring down his blessings upon us. And what will our response be? Is this, first off, is this a message that is relevant to our church today? And I think that's not really a hard answer. And the question is, like, how are we responding to God pouring down blessings in our lives? How are we taking a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing? And I have two suggestions for us today. First off, and this is something that I'm guilty of as well, we take this idea uh, of justice, uh, of wanting, desiring justice, which is such a good thing. It's talked about in the Bible over and over again to seek justice. And then we, we somehow find a way to make it into an ultimate thing. Um, I was hearing this story on NPR 
uh, earlier, earlier this week, and it was this story about a woman named Justine Sacco. Some of you might know who I'm talking about. Um, Justine, uh, as a PR rep in New York, was traveling and has 170 Twitter followers, okay? Not very active. She was traveling um, from Heathrow Airport to South Africa, and before she took off, she shot out this text that she'll probably regret for the rest of her life. She wrote, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, JK, I'm white. She shot that uh, tweet out, didn't get any responses, didn't think much of it, shut off her phone, took off, and went to sleep. 11 hours later, she landed in South Africa, turned on her phone, and got, and got immediately a message popped up on her phone. It, it was from her best friend. It said, Justine, I need you to call me immediately. You are the number one trending topic on Twitter right now. You met, what, what had happened was one of her 170 followers decided to take her tweet, send it to a popular journalist. That journalist retweeted it to his 50,000 followers. And 11 hours later, this was viral. Everybody knew what was happening. And you can imagine what happened next. The world collectively decided to dismantle this woman's life piece by piece. Her name went from being searched from like 40 times a month to 1.2 million Google searches in the months following. She lost her job because, of course, social media demanded that she relinquish, relinquish her PR job. It's like the irony there just blows me away. Um, and then the part where we took justice and made it, take, took it from a good thing and made it into an ultimate thing, I think, is when we started to tolerate all of the injustices that were starting to happen, when she started to receive death threats, and when she started to, uh, her sense of security was stripped away from her. And I have to ask, is this justice? Or is this something where we took a good thing, this idea of wanting justice, made it into an ultimate thing, and it ended up being a platform and a breeding ground for ultimate, ultimate injustice? I think that's something that we have to be uh, like aware of and conscious of when we share things on social media, not just of what we post, but also of how we, how we affect other people by how we do it. When in seeking justice, we might not be doing that. We might be doing the exact opposite. And number two, also something that I'm guilty of, we could be making an idolatry out of theology, theology or religion. Um, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about some heavy things. We were talking about how um, there's so many people on this earth. Like, if you've ever been to New York or if you've ever been to, like, Athens, you see, like, a million people in front of your eyes, and you wonder how, how can, like, so many people not know Christ, and how can so many people, like, go to hell? And these heavy thoughts like that, and my friend responded with this. He said, don't worry, it's fine, because you're part of the elect. And it took everything within me to keep my act together. Because in one sentence, not only did he say that it was okay that thousands and millions and billions of people were going to be down for all eternity, he played God and said that I was, I was okay, that I was saved. And I think that's what happens when we take a good thing, like knowing God and knowing the, and, and this, this idea that God reveals himself to us and we can understand him through our theology, through our religion, and we make it into an ultimate thing. And we reduce this message of, of Christianity to how can Christianity benefit me rather than, rather than me affecting other people, me loving other people more. And if we're caught to follow Christ, the first step in following in the footsteps of Christ is realizing that Christ never put himself on the top of his own priority list. 
He put the weight of the world and he put the cross on his back and he carried it up a hill and he died for our sins. And in that power of his death, but more importantly, in the power of his resurrection, we have the strength to look our idolatries in the eye and grab it by the collar and tell it to take a seat because my God lives. That when we, when we struggle, God promises that he will give us a way out, that he will be with us, and that he will ultimately save us from whatever has his grip on our lives. And that the promise of Jesus Christ is the only promise that demands all of our lives. Out of the thousands and thousands of empty promises that we buy into, the promise of Jesus Christ is the only one that demands all of our lives, but yet in return gives it back to us. And it is in that hope and in that grace that we stand and we pray to the God. We pray to the God who has given us the hope and the peace to do so. Let us pray. Let us stand and pray. Father God, we just come before you and we think about all the empty promises that we've bought into. We think about everything that we have put our hope and faith and trust in after all the blessings that you've given us. And we take it and we make it into a God. We put it alongside you and we, and, and we turn it into a God in and of itself. And we apologize for that. And God, as you reveal to us today that you are faithful and that you are loving and that you can, you can come into our lives, break in, and through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, save us from that. We find hope and strength to go out through into this week, believing in you and trusting in you that you are the one and only God in our lives and that you are actively seeking for our hearts and for our minds to glorify you more and more. We find our hope in that, and we love you. And in Jesus' name we pray.
for me You will always be more than enough for me Nothing's gonna stop the plans you made Nothing's gonna take your love away You will always be more than enough for me You will always be more than enough for me You will always be more than enough for me Nothing's gonna stop the plans you made Nothing's gonna take your love away You will always be more than enough for me you will always be more than enough for me. You will always be more than enough for me. Nothing's gonna stop the plans you've made. Nothing's gonna take your love away. You will always be more than enough for me. Doesn't matter what I feel. Doesn't matter what I see. My hope will always be in your promises to me I'm casting out all fear, for your love set me free My hope will always be in your promises to me Doesn't matter what I feel, doesn't matter what I see Friends, I hope you will join us next week as we kick off a new series uh, where we rediscover Jesus in his own words. Uh, God brings us in here with his amazing first word, and he sends us out with this last uh, this time from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Go out in that hope and peace this week. We will see you next week.